This is Aider and a Better with Avi Singh and Sajid Khan. What up, Sajid? What's up, Avi? On today's episode, uh, we are joined for the first time uh, with a guest, Kevin Bilal Chapman. Hello, how you doing? I'm glad to be here. Uh, we're thrilled. We're absolutely thrilled. We're going to talk about Bilal's story. He's been featured on a Netflix documentary called The Return. He's been a guest on John Oliver's show, and he has a really incredible story. I can't wait to get into it. In our opening statement, we're going to talk about that. In our deep dive, we're going to talk about the re- recent decision about parole in O.J. Simpson. We're going to talk about parole in general, aging prison populations, and uh, Bilal's going to stand in with us. And then, of course, at the end of the episode, we will do our things. Let's do it. Start to kick us off. So we're, as you just mentioned, we're honored to have our first guest ever on the Aider and a Better podcast, Kevin Bilal Chapman. Bilal, you and I met four, five years ago yes. in 2012. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And can you tell the audience how we how we met? If you recall, uh, yeah, uh, my attorney at the time, uh, I'm a former incarcerated uh, returning citizen. So um, we first met through my attorney, Jessica, Del- Jessica Delgado, uh, at the public defender's office. Because uh, as we began to uh, go down this journey of trying to be released from prison, uh, she said, I'm both, both you and I are both practicing Muslims. She said, hey, um, there's an opportunity for um there's not there's somebody that I want you to meet in my office. His name is Sajid. You know, I think there's a wonderful thing that you guys can talk about, and things you can learn from each other. So I said, yeah. So you came to see me. Yeah. And uh, I was just like, man, amazed that I was able to speak to somebody that can kind of think the same thoughts that I had, and was really um, comforting to me. So that's how we first met. Yeah. So this was in 2012, Prop 36 or 2013, maybe. Yes. Uh, Prop 36 just passed in the state of California, uh, changing the three strikes law, um, mandating that people convicted of nonviolent, non-serious third strikes got a chance at being released from their uh, life sentences. And you were assigned to my colleague, Jessica Delgado. That is correct. And she found out that you were a practicing Muslim. She knew that I was a practicing Muslim. And she said, hey, uh, she said to you, I'm going to get Sajid to come see you. Yes. And then she got me to come visit you and at the time I was on a juvenile court assignment so I wasn't even handling adult cases right. so I uh took me a little while to come see you I think you were <laughs> waiting I was I was like what's this guy ain't coming and uh <laughs> I remember we met at Main Jail South mm-hmm. and uh oh I hadn't gosh. met you because it was a blind yeah. date essentially R- I didn't know what you looked like and we sat there in that room and we talked and we talked about faith and yeah. family and what things were going to be like on your release and uh, or possible not release what was I going to do did yeah. you know at the time if you were getting released? No, absolutely not. Because your case was contested. Contested. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't know, and I was like, you know, I wanted to have faith and hope and belief, but at the same time, I couldn't give myself that much. Because what if I had to go back? Right. You know, yeah. and that was a, that was a real possibility of going back. And if I had to go back, I had to keep that that well, facade and that kind of imagery of it. Can I ask you? You were incarcerated for eleven years total. Yes, just about 11. Were you uh, incarcerated when the first reform measure was on the ballot? So the the state of California was going to vote on whether to change the three-strike law in like 2006, I think? Prop, 30, prop, 30, prop 66. And so you, it sounds like was, you were. I was. Uh, what was, I mean, uh, what was that like? So in like February and March and April, we were like 76% to 24%. It was just killing the polls. We were going to like win. Gonna it was going to kill it. And then it got to about June, July. It was about mm, 65%, 35%. It was still really, really high. 
and it got around October, and Arnold Schwarzenegger went to work, went on an all-out blitz on it. We're going to let this person out. You're going to let that person out. Hmm. You know, and uh, people Did they talk about looking. you where you mentioned them? I wasn't, they didn't <laughs> talk about me personally. If they would have talked about me personally, we'd all went home. But no, they yeah. they talked about, you know, specific people that I thought were, they thought were going to be dangerous and going to be, um, you know, possibility, you know, uh, recidivism when they came out. So they were really scared. And I'll never forget that night. We were still winning like 52, 48% that night. And um, when I woke up the next morning, we had lost, we had lost 51, 49, somewhere around there. And uh, there was two suicides that day at San Quentin. Wow. So. And several uh, others around the around the state of California. It was very devastating to a lot of us. Were you at San Quentin at the time? I was. I mean, yeah, so then you're now with Sajid and you're thinking, yeah. am I going to get out or am I not going to get out? You know, I, you have a shot. Yeah, I saw, I saw that hope come and go, you know. And then I saw people I saw people who have been in prison for, you know, seven to life for 30 years and still not get out. I saw model citizens in prison and never get out. So here it is. This is, you know, I didn't want to go for essentially the same uh, uh, solemn story again. So I, I was really, really concerned that if I was able to the opportunity to go home, Oh, man, that's great. If I did not have that opportunity, my mind was already set that I just had to get to be a better person in prison. Because if I didn't go home, I was still in prison with life. You still have a life to live. Yeah, Yeah. so it's tough. It was t- believe me, it was tough. So. so for a little bit of background then, so 2012, 2013, you're facing a contested hearing where the DA's office is contesting your release yes. um, pursuant to Prop 36. And so there were a category of folks that weren't contested. So you fell into that, into a different bin. Yes. And and um, ultimately, when did you get out? When did a judge grant your grant your release? What well, was in 2013? It was, uh, so first, you know, with Jessica in the office of the public defenders also said that they needed to see what I had done while I was in prison. And part of the thing that, that sold this law this time was it gave the discretion to the judge. The judge had the opportunity to say yes or no. The first one didn't. If you were eligible, you all got out. This one said it depended on what you did while you were in prison. And it just so happened in 2004, 2005, I went to school. I went to college. I began to uh, uh, explore some of the things that got me in prison. I also wanted to find out more about me, what kind of person I was, what could I do to help myself or help others. So I started to do those things, and I think those things really – um, assisted me in, in a great deal. I also started finding about my addiction. I had addictive personality. Um, I had been in prison. I'm a beat offender, so I had several times I had been in jail. And most of my trouble was all because of drugs and alcohol, so I had to look at that. What made me continue to go down that path? And I learned a lot about me, about triggers, what helped me, what kind of, um, what I was trying to cover up with um, drugs and alcohol. So so that kind of that kind of helped me a lot Was I was able to find out more about myself. And then I became more active in that role and active in other things that uh, assisted me at becoming better. So I didn't want a chance of, um, if I got a chance to go home, I wanted to be a better person. So let me, let me ask you then, I have a couple of questions about that. You know, do do you attribute that change, those changes that you were making to prison or do you attribute it to your maturation or some combination of both? I would never give prison um, I think prison is necessary for society, but I don't think prison cannot be the way for a person to change and to become a better person. It can't be prison. You know, I was fortunate enough to have an opportunity at the prison I was at, which gave me an opportunity to go to school, 
and do better. Most prisons just have you an opportunity to stay in a cell or walk the yard. So I was fortunate. I found a little opportunity to do things, and I just took I just went and took advantage of them. I think there's a lot of people who also, just like me, take advantage of those um, opportunities and do better. Um, some don't. I was one that just took advantage of what was available to me. Prison did not make it better for me. I think age always helps. Maturity. I was immature when I was younger, you know. Um, I didn't have that same type of respect level that I needed to be a citizen, you know. And I think that things really changed for me there. N another thought or question I had for you was um, what drove you to be better or to do better, to take those classes, to separate yourself from kind of the negative element in prison and instead find positive associations, positive things to do with your time. Uh, when you didn't have a law on the books that assured your release, what was your initial sentence, by the way? I'm sorry. My sentence was six life sentences plus 150 years. Wow. For selling um, right about $200 worth of methamphetamines to an undercover cop. Four times, by the way. And and then you had priors. That I had, I had prior, strike um, priors that... Strike priors from 1988. How old um, were you in 1988? 24. Between 23 and 24 is when I first initially ever got in trouble. You know, um, I was uh, using crack, selling crack. I was in uh, cocaine type of thing. I, I did a lot of that then, you know. I think we had a big epidemic in the 80s of that. And, uh, yeah, I went through that. And then I went to prison and learned about methamphetamines. So in, prison. in prison. In prison. So, you know. In California? In California. So I came out, and then that was the next thing that I began to use. And then when I came home, or when I was in prison, and, and after the first Prop 66 failed, and I said, I'm, gonna, I'm here forever. Because yeah. I didn't really think it that I was going to stay there forever at first. Because I said, I hadn't done enough, you know. I sold a little methamphetamines to someone. I think that that's not enough for me to be in prison for life. But then when, they, when law came and said, yeah, people said, it's not going to happen. But then when the people voted it to stay in again, I said, this is it, you know. And I made that choice. I, this is going to be it. But if this is going to be it, then I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to learn more about me. And if I can help somebody, it kind of seems like a cliche. If I can help somebody when they come in. But what else could I do? I mean, I, I didn't want to change who I was and succumb to the prison life. So uh, that's what I became. I just thought I was going to be a better person. And I had no idea that there was going to be another law on the, on the books another eight years later. I had no idea, but I just knew I wanted to be better. And throughout the next eight years, I just did things. I just did more. I just went to school. I just learned more. I, I, I studied hard in my faith. I just, you know, I just did more that way. You know, your family, after years and years go by, they just become less and less visible, less and less noticeable, less and less around. Because they look at you. you got 150 to life. What can they do for you? Yeah. You know, they can do nothing for you. They love you, and they wish they could do something. But what can they do for you? Send you a package now and then? You know, maybe visit you once every two years? There's not much they can do, so, you know. So you, you basically, after 66, you figured this place isn't going to define me. Absolutely not. That's uh, that's so, I mean, I can't even imagine. I yeah. can't. Yeah. So when Prop 36 passes, what's your... <laughs> Yeah. Prop 36 passes in 2012, November 2012. What's what's the what's your reaction, and then what's the reaction um, in 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 the prison facility you're at at that time? It's amazing because we believe that there's now this real opportunity to go home, and nothing can stop us. Not the courts, 
not the judges, not CDC, nothing can stop us. And then reality hits, where am I going? What am I going to do? Where do I live? If I'm granted this opportunity, right? So some guy says, I'm going to my mom's house, I'm going to my brother's house, I'm going to my girlfriend's house, going to my wife's house. And a lot of it's like, and I thought about that, man, I, but I wanted to go like to my mother's house or my family's house, but that's where I did all my criminal activity. I'm not going there, so I got to find a place to live. I was never offered a drug program or, or halfway house or anything of that nature. I just wanted to just get out, and I just wanted to do several things. All I asked for is when I got out, all I just wanted was a driver's license. And I just wanted a Social Security card. And I just wanted a resume. And I just wanted an opportunity to find a job. I just wanted a white shirt, a pair of black pants, and black shoes and a tie. I just wanted to look for a job. That's all I wanted. I said, I'll take it from there. Did you come up with, like, a reentry plan before the judge, you know, ruled on your release? And were you coming up with that planning about what you wanted while you were still incarcerated? So I didn't think I was going to get released. So I began to work on this plan, I guess, six months, maybe maybe, maybe five months from the time that we really found out that we were going to go home. But then I had to, you know, say if I, I was con- – my, my case was contested. So since my case was contested, I had to work really hard to the judge and tell him what I thought I was going to do. So I began to put together a plan, a one-day plan, a 48-hour plan, a 72-hour plan, a one-week plan, a 30-day plan, a 60-day plan, 90 days, and six months. This is what I was going to do over the next six months. And I mean, mapped it out, and I stayed true to it completely. All the way, I mean, all the way through, I just stayed through, um, completely true to it. All the way to a one-year plan, a two-year plan, and I succeeded all of my, all of my expectations, I just succeeded. I just wanted to bless unfortunate ones, and I just succeeded all the things that I thought that I could even possibly get near, and I passed them all by, you know. And um, I've seen Sajid over the last four years all the time, you yeah. know, and, and he always asks me what's going on with you, and I said um, it's almost like bragging because mm-hmm. people won't believe right. me if I told you what I'm doing. I've seen you in really amazing circumstances, too. I went to a Cal-Oregon football game at Levi Stadium, and I'm walking out of the stadium, and I there I see Bilal. He's got he's got the uh, security vest on. He's got the badge for Levi Stadium. He's working working there on a Friday night, um, ushering people out. We stop amongst this big crowd and <laughs> have a big hug. We took a picture together. Yeah. I mean, it was just a beautiful blessing to see you that 65, night. Sixty-five thousand fans, by the way. Yeah, and then just and the two of us <laughs> end up <laughs> connecting. Um, I mean, to go from meeting you at Main Jail South yeah. with you wearing a jail uniform to meeting you outside of Levi Stadium, and then I see you at the mosque uh, yeah. randomly, and yeah. we've connected. Um, and we've I've also seen you at your workplace. So uh, yeah. tell, tell us about where, you know, you talk about this plan. Um, is the job that you're at now the first job that you got out of uh, uh, after being incarcerated? It is. And, it is. And, and what are you doing, and, and what's, it, what's it like? So now I'm an operations manager. Um at a big logistics company here in Santa Clara. And so I got this job through a temp services when I first got out, right? And they were just looking for somebody that could um, maybe work on a forklift, wrap some pallets, move some stuff around. And I did it. And I was just so excited about being there, right? And so I took the job and I just, it was in shipping and receiving. So I just took the job and I said, well, I can do that. I can learn that. But I think the biggest fear was too, also was computers. 
I did some of it, but then you have to learn everything is technology, right? So I had to really, really get in and learn a lot about technology because you got to remember, though, even cell phones were foreign to me. Yeah. You know? So uh, I had to really get in and work. So when I got there, I just said, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to do two things. I'm going to come to work every day, and I'm going to come to work on time. Did you have computer training when you were incarcerated? No. No, we didn't. We had, we had some but not much. It was so limited and they're so afraid of you getting near the internet or so, you know, afraid of you getting anywhere to the outside world or too much learning thing, you know, technology wise. So no, we didn't have, and very little did you have, especially being a lifer. And there's a lot less given to you as a lifer than there is to the person that's got a year or two years. So, yeah. So you went in, in 2002, 2001. Yeah. Yeah. And you get out in 2013. Yeah, the world has changed dramatically. What was the, what were some of the biggest changes? I mean, you're you went in before Facebook started, before you, text messaging, before text messaging, before, before emojis, <laughs> before emojis. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there's I mean, a whole. I mean, tell us what was before Fitbits. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, those are no, I, got, <laughs> I got one of those that's got a yeah. I think you when you got out, you I had given you my number. And I remember you texting me and saying something to the effect of, this is one of the first text messages you've ever sent. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, see, see, I think we all take so many things for granted, like even a text yeah. message. So a phone. So I got my first Metro phone, and um, I get it, and I'm trying to figure out how it works. And I just, as far as I could get, is turn it on. Now I got to order something or I need to make an email. Now I need to try to sign up for Facebook now. I'm, and all these things are just, you'd never see it. I sit there in front of it for hours and hours and hours. And then now that I've been out for a while and I've picked up guys and I've worked with guys being released and I take them to get a phone and it just is amazes me what they look like when they put a phone in their hand and they're flipping through it and they're trying to do things and they're trying to get things. And, uh, yeah, so that was one of the biggest things is, is cell phones. Yeah. You you said that you when you started at your company, you thought you could do more than the shipping and you got into the got into the computer lab or, you know, got into the workshop. What what were you doing to uh, to get up to speed on? So what I did, strengthen like I s- your confidence. I just uh, like I said, I came to work every day and I come to work on time and I started seeing different things, you know, like if this guy wasn't in and we couldn't do that. I said, is that right? Well, then teach me how to do that. You know, and if this girl wasn't here in this position then we wouldn't be able to work there in this position we'd have to send that material to another building i said well i'm here teach me how to do that and i just started taking bits and pieces of shipping and receiving and and move orders and moving things and uh, i just got better i think i just got better and when the time came to start putting per- a person in the management they said well he's here every day let's try him and i've just never looked back i've been promoted four times now and um now I have 116 employees that report to me and nine supervisors. So I have a question for you on that. So initially when we started to meet yeah. and talk, I remember I met you and I actually shared that picture of you uh, with me at Levi Stadium on Facebook. Right. And you sent me a note. I sent you a note saying, hey, I wrote this little post about you. And you sent me a note back. You said, you said to me, hey, one of your buddies is a coworker of mine <laughs> and he's talking at my work. He's talking at your work about you and your story and you were a little bit um embarrassed or you're a little bit hesitant about having mm. your story being known amongst your coworkers. but now obviously you're here sitting with us on a podcast and you've been on talking John to Oliver. the millions and millions <laughs> of listeners to <laughs> Ader and a better on the Ader nation Ader nation <laughs> <laughs> we see you Ader nation 
and uh, you've been on John Oliver um, on last week tonight, which has a huge following. Yes. Um, so what changed from your, well, actually, before I ask you what changed, what was your initial concern about being known as Kevin Bilal Chapman, you know, the formerly incarcerated? How did that impact your ability to get that job? How did it impact your ability to maintain your job? How did it impact your ability to, um, to gain upward mobility? So that's um, still something I struggle with. Yeah. For several reasons. First, I didn't never want to go backwards, right? I don't want to be looked upon as the, the inmate or the prisoner because people are very judgmental. I don't want to be looked, at the, looked upon as that. I'm a returning citizen. I'm a person that pumps his gas right next to you. I you know, buy my fruit at the same grocery store you go to. You know, I eat at the same restaurants, and I work at the same company as you and cash my check at the same bank. So it's nothing different that way. You don't know anything, you would think nothing different of me, you know. If you talk to me, you wouldn't think nothing different of me. But if someone tells you that guy got out of prison years ago or he's been in prison or he had a life sentence, things change completely about your opinion of, about me now. I didn't want that. Especially now that I'm in management, it's important for me not to have uh, people not being able to respect my position and respect what I do because I am going to be, I'm going to hold people accountable. I'm going to be accountable and I expect them to be accountable. I don't want you to look at me any differently because I may have a, had a pass before. That maybe just I got caught and you didn't. So I think some of those things were with me. And then I work at a company that's got a lot of intellectual properties. And they, I was always worried the fact that if they came in and said, hey, well, yeah, you passed all the background checks. You passed all the screenings. You were honest about everything. But, you know, and, and, and this is my career. I don't want my career to be defined by something I did years ago. Or to be, be defined about something I did the first time I ever did anything, which is over 25 years ago. I don't want to be defined with that because those are over. I pay my debt to society. You know, I pay taxes every year. I'm a, I'm a citizen. I vote. I don't want that any of that stuff that I did in the past be brought up to me today. So that's kind of why I don't say the name of the company. The companies, you know, because I haven't, they haven't came out to support that. They, they know about it. They've looked at it. But they haven't came out to support it. If that day ever comes, I'd be gr I'd be great to be able to say that. That's my hesitation. My hesitation is my future and my career. The one thing that I think the overturning citizens ever want is a is a good career job. I've been blessed to have that, so I protect that. You know, so I protect that by yeah. by being a good worker, by coming to work every day, and protecting their anonymity as well. You know. Yeah. So I think that's what's so. Important. But now, obviously, um, I I sense that you're also willing and ready to, and you've been already yep. a, a, a bigger voice uh, than maybe you even anticipated uh, when you initially got released. Yes. Um, so what's shifted? Like what, what, why, why be on the podcast with us? Why go on to John Oliver? Um, you know, why participate in film festivals for your film, The Return, um, which we haven't even talked about yet, but <coughs> why, why take that step out into public view? I was going to be the first person on this show. Why wouldn't I come? No. <laughs> we made him an offer he couldn't refuse. <laughs> no, I, I thought that, you know, hey, I, I really thought deep down that this is the right thing to do. I think that having the opportunity to share with other people who won't have that opportunity I think is important. Um, yeah, I didn't want to go. I was selfish about it because I, I think my life has started to get to be okay. You know, I didn't want people to wonder who I was. I wanted to be accepted for who I am. So I was uh, afraid of that, you know, literally. I put some of the fear away to faith. 
that this is what's going to happen. This is what needs to happen. And if for some reason someone says, hey, I don't want you around because of that or I don't want to keep you on my team because of that, then I'm fine with that now. I was afraid of it before. I'm not afraid of it anymore. You know, if this is what's necessary. This is what needs to be done. And, and we know criminal, criminal justice system needs to be reformed. There's things that need to happen, you know. And even Republicans and Democrats are coming together on a lot of this reform now. So, I mean, so this is a, a big deal for all of us. Um, I think that we all need to look at what's best for us, what's best for society, what's best for the community. Hey, I'm saving the community money by being out. Being out. You know, I mean, completely. I, I, I can strengthen families because I can talk to them about this. I can strengthen the home because I'm there. I can strengthen the community because I'm, I'm paying taxes. You know, I'm an employer, so I, I employ people. And I'm saving the taxpayers money because they're not paying for me to be in prison. Yeah. You know. Can we uh, talk a little bit about The Return, the Netflix documentary? Let's do it. How, how did you get involved in that? What was the kind of sequence of events? So Prop 36 was, was coming up, right? And Katie Galloway and Kelly Dwayne De La Vega, the filmmakers, are incredible. They have been in criminal justice reform for years. That Both of their parents were involved in that. And they... Uh, and they kind of found out about it, and they seen this was going to happen. So they wanted to start to possibly follow some of the people that are possibly, some of the guys or girls, believe me, there's women as well that were involved, with people who are going to get possibly released from prison over this. And the ones that they did, they wanted to follow them for a couple of years and see how you did, how did you turn back into society, what happened. These are all the people that society or the before the law changed said, we don't want you ever to get out. So if you got out, what would happen, you know? So people are afraid of letting people out that had a life sentence. So had, if we let you out, what would you do? What would you do in society? What kind of um, person would you be? And so they got it. I guess they kind of knew Jessica. Somebody knew Jessica. And Jessica said, I have a guy you can follow. It's Kevin. You know, Blau. You know, so we'll see what happens with that. And then we followed a few other people. So that's kind of, that was my introduction into the film. Did the fact that you had filmmakers following you around how did that impact your performance on release, if at all? Did it did it help push you to to do better, or were you independently going to do better? The reason I ask that is because if you watch the film, there's another gentleman that's profiled on it yes. who struggles, uh, right. who fell back into addiction, yeah. um, and didn't have doesn't seemingly have the same success story that that you have so far. Yeah the the film f the film crew following us was you know if anything it was intrusive but, <laughs> <laughs> but i loved them you know and i think they were genuine um they were trying to make a film they wanted to they wanted society to know that these are the pitfalls and these are good things and these are the bad things after a while of course i didn't want them around because you know hey i i came home things are starting to go good then i'm walking down the street with a camera and a boom and and you have to act natural because it's it's not acting it's you just living your life it was me going to see my mother you know, it was me going to my uh, friends. It was me uh, looking for a job, doing the things that I was doing. It's really, really, it was just a genuine uh, piece about guys getting released, you know. And I I really respect that the way they showed it. I really respect the, what they did, you know, in the way that they filmed it, too. So, it, to me, it was amazing. I thought that for a while I didn't want to, I didn't want any parts of it because I had came home. And every time I saw the, the camera, every time I saw them, it just reminded me that I was in prison. It just reminded me of going back to jail. It just reminded me 
That's why they're following me, you know. Even when I came down to the probation department or I went down to the church or everywhere I went, it just reminded me again of being in jail and being incarcerated. So I, you know, I was not happy for them to be around, but I thought it was my duty. Also, I wanted to be a part of something like that. One of the things that stood out to me when I watched the film was the the place that you happened to find when you were released, the home that you went to, Mm -hmm. and how, like, loving the guy he has like long brown hair <laughs> he seems really tall and yep. uh, maybe a goatee or something like that and he kept telling you like every time he interacted with you he would tell you that he loves you he would say bless you i love you mm-hmm. okay i'll talk to you later yeah. and and i what was that like so i had right when i was about to be released i started writing all kind of programs because i had never been to a program or a halfway house i don't want anyone to think that my family doesn't love me because i could have went home my family does love me Love me a great deal. They love me so much and let me do whatever I wanted to do. So I didn't want to be back into that mode and put my family back through the things that I could possibly do. I wanted a little more structure and I wanted to go to a place that I can learn to be on my own and get on my own two feet and I can get my own bank account and I can start doing things that way. Family loves you so much, they don't mind if you sleep on the couch, you know, and do nothing and drink out, drink milk right out of the refrigerator. They don't even care because they love you. So I didn't want. I didn't want to do that to them. So I wanted to be able to uh, uh, do something that was better. So I went to this home. I didn't get there. I got there through Jessica. I got there through Jess- Jessica and, and another guy through a church called Dave Modest. They have a church collaborative right here in Santa Clara, Santa Clara County, which gives you an opportunity to go to um, a faith-based collaborative. Even though I'm a Muslim, it was a Christian home. But I was just trying to I'll follow the rules, whatever they needed me to do. You know, It was going to give me an opportunity to have a place to live, pay to sleep. And, uh, and you know, get a driver's license, get a Social Security card, move move on. So that's where I went. You know, they found a place for me, and I went there. And I thought it was uh, amazing that I did that. I wanted to ask you, too, I mean, we talked about the return. You grew up in San Jose, is that right? It is. Um, and the, the crimes that you got convicted for and sent to prison for, did they happen here in San Jose, too? They did. And then now you're released back into San Jose. You return to San Jose, yep. and now you're living this beautiful, healthy life. What's I mean? Just describe, if you can, think about that contrast between where you were in San Jose as a younger person, and then where you are as as the man you are today uh, in the same city. Yeah, you know that was, that was one reason why I didn't want to go to my mother's home or or my brothers and go into the same neighborhood because I didn't want to. You know, see the same friends, see the same, you know, people, environment, and family. So I removed myself. Some people can go back, and I probably could have too. But I wanted to give myself every opportunity to do the right thing, you know. So I removed myself from there. Uh, I still see people, and I'm still talking to people who are continuing in, in a different light. And I've just made a clear decision. If you weren't going down the road that I'm going down, then I really had nothing we had nothing more we could do. We've done that before, and I'm not going down that road anymore. And it didn't matter if it was sister, brother, aunt, uncle, cousin, mother, father. It didn't matter who. If you were on that side of the fence, I wasn't going with you. And that's just the way I've just um, lived my life ever since I've been out. I'm also involved in programs, you know. Uh, I go to AA. I uh, have sponsors. I have sponsees, you know. And I have that same message for a lot of my sponsees and people that talk to me about things and who struggle. And you cannot go down that road. At least that's my suggestion. That's what's worked for me. If you ask me what works for me is to alleviate people who are on the wrong side, you know, who are doing things that, you know, 
maybe easy for them to do, but I can't do, you know, um, I'm a lot better than maybe a lot of other people, you know, I've, I've got, I've passed 14 years clean and sober, but you know, uh, that's part of my story as well. You know, sobriety, you know, I think probably you probably know more, Sajid, I think it's probably up over 70% of people in prison or higher is because of drugs and alcohol, right? So I think that that's what every single time I went to jail was because of that. So if I remove that, what would happen to me in my life? So I remove that, and things have just been amazing in my life. Have you been, um, so you sponsor people. Have you been doing other reentry work uh, with people who are incarcerated who are getting out? So I've also been working with the with um, Stanford program, which is one of the Obama clemency program. So we've also went the ride home. So what the ride home program is, the guys will get released, and then we'll take them to their first halfway house or to their first program place that they're going to go. So I went, my last one is I went down to Los Angeles and picked a guy up from federal prison. He was released on the clemency program, and he was going to Las Vegas. And you talk about funny, he's been down for 15 years. And so he left with $5 and a debit card and a gray sweatsuit and a brown bag, right? And they told him this, like, the bus station's that way. I was like, wow. So I said, hi, I'm Bilal. I'm from the clemency program. I'm here to pick you up. Really? Yeah, I'm here to take you home. He didn't know you were coming? No. They knew, we had hoped that he had known that somebody was coming, but then they had told him at the last minute they didn't think anybody was coming. Yeah. So it was great that I was able to make it. Do you remember what town it was? Yes, it was in Los Angeles. Yeah, so I got down there. It was, it was so I see him, and I tell him who I am, and I, got, and I welcome him with open arms. I said, let's go get something to eat. He goes, nice, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so we get, went and got something good to eat, and I took him to get some um, toiletries and got him some shoes and got him a pair of jeans, got him a few things uh, from the program, and it was exciting. We took a ride down the, to Las Vegas, and we stopped on the strip and got something else to eat, you know, um, and I walked him to the program, and I told him what happened to me in my life. I told him where I was from and the things that I had done and the things that had helped me. And we've kept in touch, and he seemed to have been doing okay. And it was exciting to hear that he was excited about what I did and where I came from, and he couldn't believe what was going on. And he had the same issue. He was had that phone in his hand, and he just couldn't get it out of his hand. He just kept flipping. He kept flipping. He just was amazed at the phone. So that was that was exciting. So, yeah, that, that has also helped me. I've, I've been able to reach out to some guys there and reach out to guys coming back into the program. And I always uh, like to tell them my story of what's happened with me probably gives them just incredible amounts of hope you know if you get out and the first person you meet is Bilal <laughs> right yeah, it's, it's in pretty terms cool. of what could happen how you could yeah I mean it's land. it's just beautiful and if especially if um, someone like Bilal who is so open and so vulnerable with his story and is sharing the ups and downs both of his past and his present um, and can empathize with what this gentleman is about to go through and having that, uh, what do you call it, the ride home? Oh, yeah. That's beautiful. I oh didn't yeah. even know that existed. So you got to remember, though, you know, just think about it. Most time people get out of prison, the first 24 hours is the hardest time. People say, right. why is that first 24 hours so hard? Because as soon as you get out and you go to your girlfriend's house or your friend's house or your cousin's, they, they got party. a six-pack of beer, yeah. some marijuana, they want to hang out. You haven't even, If you've been gone 10, 12 years, you go back and you drink a full six-pack of beer and smoke a couple of joints, you will not remember that night. And then you're already, you start the next day, you're ready for another beer, another drink. And then before you know it, three or four days, you just been home, three or four days, you're back addicted. Well, you're that addiction ready. probably never left and you, it, right? And, and it mean, never it's, left it's just you. Dormant and you never worked you. on it. Right. And then so your loved ones, the first thing your loved ones do is hand you almost a loaded gun. They give you a six pack of beer. Wow. And they give you $40, $50. Here you go. 
And that's just not the way, you know, but, but we didn't know any better. Everybody, you think about any even gangster movies or something. You see somebody come home and there's a big party for them, right? Yeah, and there's, coming home there's, parties. Yeah. With wine and liquor and alcohol. And that's always, people think that's the best thing. That's the worst thing. You got to remove yourself from that immediately. It should be know? a coming home mindfulness session. Absolutely. Coming home yoga. Well, that's one of the things wilderness. you were doing in prison, right? You it were was. You were doing yoga, right? I was. And Half of yoga, yeah, for sure. Do you sure. still do it now? I haven't done it as much as I should, you know. I mean, you can say I put on a few pounds. And I just <laughs> yeah, you range just, of motion. You look yeah, tight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, just been, I haven't been able to do that. As, I wish I, I, wish I would have, but, you know, my job is very demanding. Yeah. I spend a lot of time in my job. And then as a campaign representative for the return, I've done a lot of traveling. I've been fortunate enough to make it to the White House and to the Senate. Wow. And I've been, went on a 10-city tour last year. You know, our, our film was um, was uh, nominated for a Peabody Award. We also won at uh, Tribeca, San Francisco, Berkeley. And uh, just recently, just a couple of days ago, just by the grace, we were also nominated for an Emmy. For an Emmy. So for uh, so yeah, I've, I've been Amazing. really busy, man, and also I, I'm yeah. a supervisor at Levi Stadium. I'm not, I'm not a security guard. Sorry, yeah, <laughs> I mis- misspoke. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a supervisor out there. Very. So, so yeah. What was it like to meet John Oliver? So that was, uh, so I didn't know who he was. <laughs> <laughs> He's so, tucked away on HBO. So yeah, so, 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 so you know I haven't watched weekends. HBOs, right? So they <laughs> say so. Uh, so this guy wants to interview you and. And it's a possibility he's going to do, he's not going to have any guests on his show at all but you. He you doesn't usually have guests. No. So I think you're one of the I few. Never, I never heard. He had a couple before. And then, yeah. he, then last year or the year I did it, I was the only one. And so I said, okay. So he want, He said, it's down to two people and he wants you to do it. And I'm like, I don't want to do the show. Because I talked to a couple of people and talked to you know family members. Like, you know, things are going so good with you. Why would you want to go out there and get on a show that Put could possibly... You yeah. know, you don't know how they're going to do it. And have you watched this guy? This guy's some kind of a comedian. He's going to tear you apart, right? I'm like, oh, man, I'm not going to do it. So I talked to one of the producers who I cared deeply for, Katie. And we talked. And she goes, you're on a platform. You have this opportunity. Man, this is going to be great for you. I think it's going to be wonderful. It's not so much for you. you got to get outside yourself and help others and see. And so she was talking to me. like, You know, we talked. You know, I was talking to her. And I was like, man, man I just can't stand this lady. She's... <laughs> But she was right. I love her, right? And that's because I knew what I had to conflict. do. So yeah. I knew what I had to do. So then she was going, so yeah. we were we were worried. So if you go on, then what if you lose your job? Then what happens? And so she was concerned. You're going to go on your job. You're going to lose your job. And I'm saying, and she was really worried. I mean, she's in tears. I'm talking to her on the phone. I'm like, don't worry about it. It's not up to you. I'll release you from any liability. This <laughs> is me. I made this choice, you know? And then I had Jessica on the other phone talking to me like, Two hours before, four hours before, two hours before, hour before, half hour before I'm going on the show. And I'm talking to her and I'm like, she goes, it's going to be good. I mean, Jessica, Jessica Delgado is incredible. I mean, I love her more than anything. And she was talking me through. I'm talking about half an hour out. I'm not going to do it. You'll be all right. You'll be all right. You know, and so she talked to me all the way through. And and John Oliver, they gave me, you know, this is what they wanted to talk about. And they were they were kind. John was kind. I went into a green room. I went to his office, and we sat for about 20 minutes before we went on show, and he kind of told me what we are going to do. We did a, you know, they did a, a rehearsal before, so I saw the whole show before, but they didn't bring me out, of course. You know, they just said where they were going to go because they wanted me to be live on the stage when I went. And when I went, he kind of told me how he was going to be. He was going to be courteous. He was going to be good, but, you know, he's going to do his thing. And I said, okay. So I was a little worried, 
but he was good, man. And and if you didn't know, I didn't watch the show for nine months. Oh, really? No, it's I a didn't. Cool wa- clip. I didn't watch it at all. I was I was like, oh my god, I look terrible, and I'm not gonna do it. So I didn't watch it for like yeah. nine, ten months. It's a great clip, and yeah. uh, we're gonna put it up on our show notes. On it's on YouTube. We'll put it out. Yeah. Let's take a quick break, yeah. and then when we come back, we can uh, do our deep dive on parole. All set. And we're back in this week's deep dive. We're going to talk about the O.J. Simpson parole decision in the state of Nevada and uh, some topics that come up with parole and early release or planned release uh, generally in prison. So, Saja, why don't you kick us off? Yeah, so, you know, it's really awesome that you're here, Bilal, to be able to talk with us about your story. But we also wanted to get your input on this really significant story that was in our news cycle a couple weeks ago where... Um, O.J. Simpson was up for parole in the state of Nevada, and a parole board ultimately voted unanimously to release him on parole later this year. It's probably the most famous parole hearing in this country's history. I don't think I've ever seen a parole hearing ever be broadcasted on live TV, let alone be covered in major media. So um, it really did shine a light on the parole process and shined a light on the fact that parole exists and And we wanted to talk to you a little bit bit about parole. One of the things that I wrote about after OJ got released or OJ got paroled was celebrating his parole. Not necessarily for OJ, not necessarily because of OJ or celebrating that he himself got released. Right. But because I, I was hoping and I am hoping that him being released on parole spurs some sort of movement right uh where other elderly in our that are sitting in our prisons because uh, oj was 70 is 70 years old that there may be others that will essentially benefit from his being released on parole and that there will be some sort of movement to release the elderly that are in in our prison absolutely so i wanted to talk to you about that that that's my that was my take my initial reason for celebrating the parole release and also I celebrated it because O.J. seemingly did really well in prison. It seemed like he participated in programs. He didn't have any disciplines. He had a clean record while in prison. And essentially the parole board recognized that and said, you're fit for release. And so another reason I celebrated it is because I wanted I want his parole release to essentially be, again, to spur the movement for others that are doing really well in prison, that right. are rehabilitating, that are doing well, that are show, proving themselves to be worthy of being back out in the community to also get the benefit of getting released on parole. That was my thought. What's your, what was your initial kind of first reaction to OJ getting, getting released on parole? That's kind of hard to say because, you know, people have their own opinions about it. But if I just look at the opinion about it of, of a person who's, done their time and and has the opportunity to be released i'm all for that for the person you know anybody any man or woman who has done their time and now they have the opportunity to come home and become a productive person in society and obey all laws i'm all for that you know a lot of times we get caught up with what a person has done in the past or may may have done in the past or did do in the past and they've succeeded in everything that you've asked them to do. And you've succeeded in all of the parameters set forth to you in your case. So there's nothing else to hold you. But we're still held or even attempted to be held, even though we've passed and fulfilled all our requirements or obligations in jail. Parole has to be something that gives you the opportunity to become a citizen in society 
which sometimes parole only just holds you until you go back to jail. So when you got out in 2013, or what year, what year were I, you released? I was not in parole. I was on probation. Okay. Uh-huh. And what's the difference? Probation, parole, in some aspects. So part of it is, and, and it always gets to me, is part of your parole or probation is keep gainful employment, right? But how do they come, how do they know this? They want to come to your job. They want to come to your job in all their glory and their uniform and their badges and their guns, and they walk up to your front. Uh, you could be a hairstylist, you know, or, you you know, whatever. You could be working at a grocery store, but here comes three cops to come up to you and see you and take you outside. What does that look like to your business? What does that look like to you in society, you know? Um, pro, also, in, if you saw the film in The Return, I was on probation, and, you know, I had to um, give, I had to see my, probation officer once a month and part of it was and this is like I say again this is really got to me and I think that I really work hard on trying to get this changed is part of the the things I needed to see him once a month so my job was 8 to 4 30 I was riding a bicycle I was on a bus I was on a light rail and I was getting to work I was taking two hours to get to work and two hours to get home and in between that time he said I need to see you I said okay how about I come see you before I go to work so I can come see you, get on the bus, light rail, and make it to work on time? He goes, no, I don't wait around. I don't come in that early. I said, okay. How about you stay a little bit late after work, and I'll come and meet you? He goes, nope. I leave at 4.30. You need to be here. I leave at 4 o'clock. You need to be here by 4. I'm still at work. You want me to take off? Do whatever you have to do. I said, well, I can't take off in the middle of the day or anything like that or, or come in early. I just, you know, I've just got this job not too long. He goes, well, maybe you need to find a job more suitable for parole. Or for probation. <laughs> so they're okay. setting you up. They're setting you up to fail. Absolutely. Like, I mean, the second line so in, in my requirements was to keep gainful employment. I found that, you know, and I came to see him and I said, "I can you stay a little early or maybe stay a little late? The funny thing is that I always tell him is, well, what if they heard I was out selling drugs at 1130 at night? Would he come? Would he come out then? He'd come get me then. But he, he wouldn't stay after four. Oh, yeah. He could stay after four he then. Would. But he couldn't stay after four. To see me, to see what I was doing, to see that I was doing well, I was on a bicycle on a light rail, and I couldn't wait to come. I would come see you, no problem. Never gave him a dirty, same living environment, same uh, with a driver's license, ID, and everything. That wasn't good enough. Wow. So probation is tough, and so is parole. You know, obviously, OJ is going to have a different uh, set of circumstances on, on parole to a degree because he – may have some better family support. He may have some yeah. better financial mm-hmm. resources available Absolutely. to him, a home, things like that. Yep. But there are going to be parts of his experience uh, that are going to be challenging. Can you talk about, beyond the, the challenges that you just described, what other challenges will OJ or others like him face when they get released on parole? It depends on where you're at. depends on what you do. You know, of course, there's no no drugs and alcohol. Of course, there's no weapons. Of course, there's, uh, depending on where you're at, you can't leave. Uh, 50 miles if you're you know he still has some a great deal of celebrity so he may be still traveling here and there depends on where you're at what state different states have different requirements you know and different uh, um, aspects of what they want on parole I think some of mine too was um, I never did like I never did like the probation officer or parole officer have to come to your job I didn't like that I didn't mind them coming to your house two in the morning three in the morning six in the morning I don't care anything about that I never liked them coming to your job. They don't even come like plain clothesmen. They come with big 
probation on the back, parole. So it's almost like they're coming to embarrass you. And and it is an embarrassment. Yeah. Without a doubt, it's an embarrassment because of the fact that that your coworkers, you know, they don't know who you are. They don't know what you're doing. They really don't. And they see this guy, and I had no idea. So, yeah. so I, I I've always been against that. I think that maybe they can meet you somewhere near your job. Right. I worked it out to meet them somewhere near my job, but even then. And they would work with you on that part of it. They worked with me on that because, you know, I I completely refused to have them come to my job. I said, well, I'll come. I'll meet you across the street. You can see me walk out of the building, but, you know, I'm not. I'll show you my time cards. I'll show you my. And I did that. I turned those in as well. One of the uh, the things that was kind of interesting about the OJ parole decision for me was it seemed if you, I read some of the former boards, the parole board members who were retired saying that it was an open and shut case that it was absolutely a clear case uh, for parole for OJ based on his performance in prison, based on the fact that the parole decision is uh, it's not individualized. It's not based on how much the parole board likes or dislikes you or what they think about the uh, your conduct, not conviction previously. It's just how have you been performing in prison? What are the aggravating and mitigating circumstances of your stay in prison? including like prospects and likelihood of uh, future danger. In some instances, victim impact. And in this case, the victim of the robbery offense and kidnapping offense that OJ uh, was serving a prison term for wanted him to serve one to three years. From the outset, he got a 30-year to life, you know, the yeah. huge sentence. Uh, so And he came and testified in OJ's favor and favor of release. And it was interesting to see how such a clear case of where, uh, you know, the people who were involved in the parole process thought, okay, it's going to be pretty straightforward. It was a unanimous decision. Right. He had been denied parole previously. Right. Uh, but this time, it looked like it was uh, appropriate. How it still seems so divisive because of how divisive OJ is as an individual. Right. You know, uh, what do you think about that, Bilal? Just that his own past or people's feelings towards him being factored in. I've always said that. I always think that, you know, we're always judging our past. People can't get past the past. You know, in his case, um, he's always going to have a big stigma. He's always going to have a, a, a big clutch behind him. So, and, and even with that, and, and as good as you said that, you know, no matter who he was, if it was anybody else, anybody that did what he had done in the state of Nevada, would it have been open and shut case, you're going to get parole. You're granted parole, period, nothing to talk about, right? Being who he was or who he is, uh, that gives people pause and gives them an opportunity to think, huh, maybe. So that's still tough. Is that st- is that sticking to the letter of the law? Is that sticking to what democracy is? And that probably gives um, us all a little something to think about. Do you think that OJ's experience, the fact that it ultimately was a unanimous decision and that he got released and the parole board seemingly kept an ob- open, obje- I'm sorry, an objective mind as to his performance in prison, do you think that his experience is typical or atypical? Um, for example, let me ask you this. Were there times when you were in prison where you saw fellow inmates that were up for parole that had done everything that was expected of them who were being denied parole regularly or consistently? So that's that's really sad, you know, because it's normal for us to see a person go to the board and get denied. We used to look at, how many do you think he's going to get? Is he going to get one? Is he going to get two? Is he going to get three? Is he going to get five? And we'd see guys there that have been there for 29 years, walk with a limp, had four surgeries, you know, um, lost everybody they ever had in their life, got about three teeth in their mouth. 
and got nothing left, you know, and are no danger to anyone, but maybe the, you know, because we never really know what a person really is in jail for. They would tell you, that, you know, they could tell you this or that. They'd sweeten up their whatever they're there for. You never really know. But we'd see people go and we'd see them denied because we could see the person that they are. They're mentors, they're teachers, they're loving people. They don't get in trouble. Go to sleep early, get up, you know. Go to sleep early, get up early, you know. Good people, you know. But you never really know what that person's about. But we have seen so many people denied. We've seen so many people that are that are programming, have, you know, got degrees, working on their master's degree, teaching and doing all kind of things and going there and get denied one year, three years, five years, seven years. And what do you do? You just, there's nothing you can do. Or you see a guy get it, and then the governor take it from him. Wow. How many? I mean, had that happen? Have you seen how many times did you see that happen? Well, I just recently saw there's a case in San Quentin where a guy had done uh, 22 years, I believe, on the first three strike case, one of the first ones, and he was denied two years because I think he got, I think it was he got caught stealing some cookies and cakes out of the kitchen. At, at the prison, like a disciplinary. Yeah. yeah, and so that held him for like two more years, and he was already here for a case. Before the three-strike law would have been like 16, 2, and 3 in prison. He might have got three, maybe with a prison prior to, maybe at the most five with halftime, and he had already been down 22 years. And he still denied him. It was one of the first ones denied prison. So, uh, What are your thoughts about us as a state moving in the direction of putting policies into place where the elderly can have an opportunity to get released on parole. Kind yeah. of above and beyond compassionate release. Right, like above and beyond compassionate compassionate release. Uh, some sort of um, age rubric where they hit a certain age that they can apply for parole release um, and then attempt to demonstrate to the parole board that they are no longer a safety risk, that they've rehabilitated. Any, What are your... First of all, uh, yeah, so just tell me about your thoughts about that. Uh, I have two thoughts about that. I guess the first one is we'd have to first, the victim's rights would have to be, uh, it had to be the victims because, see, the victims, the family members of the victims would be, you know, uh, how do they feel? You know, some victims' families will come year after year after year to see that you don't get out. And you have some family members that are very supportive that will come there and say, hey, this time things happen. You know, I wish it wasn't like that and you get that opportunity. You know, um, that's very difficult. You know, I, I think that there are so many people in prison that just as time goes on and as you see them, they age out of crime. They completely age out. There's just, they age out of criminal activity. But at the same time, who's hiring somebody at 72 years old with a limp? I mean, who's hiring somebody with a uh, high school education and 69 years old and been in prison for 40 years. I mean, literally, where are your prospects? Some people are afraid to go home, and they're not mad. But there's some people that really, really want to go home and really have a place to go and some things to do. But it's 72 years, and, you know, you're 72 years old, and you haven't worked in 35. You right. know? I mean, w I mean, where where are we at? Yeah. You, know, you know, I mean, what can they do? I mean, I'm I'm not for keeping anybody in prison. You know, when but when you get to that age and you say it's time for you to go home, where are you going and to who? Yeah, I think the the dangerousness point or, you know, the aging out of criminality, yeah, age is out, the, yeah. you know, the huge point, you know, in terms of considering that as a factor for people's release if they don't have a if they have a parole date. 
you know, it seems cruel at at a certain point. The people that you've described who are staying in, losing function, you know, oh. continuing in, but not at the level of compassionate release. You know, it's just below that, but just the aging process where we have these folks who have been incarcerated for decades and decades and decades. Yeah, and there's a couple of layers to it. I was thinking, I was thinking about it in the abstract because I haven't been practicing long enough to have clients oh. that have served that lengthy of a sentence. Right. Um, but so I was thinking of it, thinking of it in the abstract in two main kind of points is one is giving people hope giving someone hope within the prison even on a lwap sentence or a 150 to life sentence to say hey you know what if i do keep my nose clean i put in the work i i'm respectful of my surroundings and my peers um, i rehabilitate myself i address my traumas my addictions that one day the state is going to give me the opportunity to get released and to rejoin my family and the second thing is just from a bigger picture perspective i just think about it from a hum humani humanitarian perspective or a dignity perspective permitting people to live out their last years with some dignity permitting them to live out their last years surrounded by family being able to meet right. their children again their grandchildren so um, those are some of the thoughts that I that I was thinking about as I was grappling with OJ's parole, and the I was comparing it to our the the trend that we have in the state of California, which is youthful offender parole. So we are recognizing that young people are different. We're recognizing that people that are 23 years of age and under, when they commit even the most right. serious crimes, are now being considered for parole release because of the fact that they were youthful offenders. So I'm thinking of some sort of corollary to that where we have essentially like an elderly parole right. provision where if someone has demonstrated like these things that I just described, they hit 65, um, that there is some way out for them. Um, but then it, uh, what I'm hearing from you is that it has to be coupled with a plan on the outside. We can't just release these folks no. and then and then expect that they're going to be kind of sitting in the park feeding the birds. It's you know? just like the beginning of the process right. to get them out. i tell you what, what, what did come to my mind when I was just listening to you, though, is I think that giving that person that hope and that, that, that ray out there that, you know, hey, if I do good here, you know, I got an LWAP, or I got this really bad time. If I just do well, you know, there's a, there's a date. I have something that I can shoot for. Because these guys, when you get 80 to life or 70 to life or 75 to life, you got to do so much time. You, you got to do 40-something years before you have a, any opportunity. And even then, if a person that's released at 70 to somewhat, you know, didn't get too bad a shape, you know, can still live his life, can still have, you know, some productive uh, um, lives and be able to go out there and make amends to people. Make amends to anybody left. Make amends to some, some victim families, you know, that can, can see that this guy, you know, or girl has done their time and done w what could possibly be. Um, and still give something back to society. So that's what I was thinking about too. I, I, I'm a junkie for prison documentaries. So even like the return, I watched a documentary called the terminal, which is on HBO, mm -hmm. um, which is about someone who was serving a life sentence, dying in hospice care right. in an Iowa state prison being tended to by fellow prisoners. Mm -hmm. Um, I've been listening to, uh, to a podcast called ear hustle, which is based yeah, in San, San Quentin. Quentin. Yep. And, what I'm, what I hear, and what I take from these podcasts and these medias that take us inside prison walls, is there's so much talent and there's so much wisdom and so much experience inside prisons that uh, that we as a community are deprived of. Um, I mean, you are for are, are a shining example of that. We're here Thank sitting you. with you, and you're able to articulate these these thoughts and ideas, and you're helping other folks on their way out. 
um, what I'm imagining is that there are others that are there's countless others if you would agree or disagree well, that agree. have the same talent and ability and potential to support and give back to our community w- what do you think well i mean I, w- I want it to be clear i'm just one of many right yeah who have been given an opportunity and are out here doing well because if i had it my way for for the longest i would have never been on this show i wouldn't have been on john oliver i wouldn't have been in a, in a documentary i would have just lived my life and just melted right into society right and there's a lot of guys who are just like that and women who just want to just melt right back in and not be anybody other than just another person, just a next-door neighbor. And it's much easier to be your next-door neighbor than your next-door neighbor that's the next con or it's your next-door neighbor who, who, who had a problem or had issues in life. I don't want to be that person, you know, because I, I like my neighbor that's across the way. Um, so it's, it's a woman and two kids, and I love to get her garbage cans, right? But I never want her to see me do it, right? I just want to be a neighbor. You know, and, and, and that's just it, you know, and I think that that's what's important for us, right? You know, and, and I always want to just be that, the guy that I've taken so much from. I want to be the person that just gives back. But I want to do as much as I can anonymously, right? I don't want to do it for for publicity. I don't want to do it for anything other than just to be a person in society. What I can't wait for is be picked for jury duty. <laughs> 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 well, you talking about you got to yeah. vote, right? I got. To, I'm yeah. on, I'm on that. I'm waiting for that call. Yeah. So. Well, you got you voted last year, right? I did. Was that your first time voting? Well, I voted. My mother at 18. You know. You know. My mother passed last year. Oh. You know. Rest in peace. Sorry. She she was amazing, and she saw stuff. You see me smiling because she saw things in me that I didn't see, and she used to always tell me that I was going to do big things in life. I was going to be somebody, and I had almost given up on me. But she never gave up on me, right? So, so as I think about her right now, I just think that uh, that my mom always never gave up on me. So we're able to uh, do big things. But there's a lot of people out here who will do well given that opportunity, given the um, the right platform. They will do fine. I think that's a great place to leave it. I think. Uh, thank you so much for doing a deep dive with us, Bilal. This is our first guest. And you know, tough to top. No, you you've got the you've <laughs> no. got the title belt. You the might title be belt now. belongs to you. <laughs> it's Aider and a Better with Bilal, uh, Avi sometimes, Sajid. <laughs> no, we really we really do appreciate it. Will you will you stay along with us to do a thing? I will be happy to. Yeah, I, I want to tell you guys first. Thank you for having me here. You know, uh, you guys made me feel very welcome. Uh, it was easy to talk to you guys. Of course, I've no Sajid and Avi. I'm glad to. Uh, you guys even thought of considering bringing me here. I've been nervous all day. I, said, <laughs> gonna, I think I'll be. I don't know. I'm gonna be. I hope I'll be all right. So. Amazing, nervous. Even though yeah. you've been on a documentary on Netflix yeah. and on yeah. John Oliver, and yeah. he and knew we were gonna turn the screws on him. <laughs> you know, with our <laughs> vicious <laughs> cross examination. Yeah. Well, no. Let, why don't we? Uh, we really appreciate you, and thank uh, you. we thank you for being on. And uh, so, why don't we take a quick break, and then we'll come back and do our things. Okay, we're back. So why don't we do our things? Sajid, uh, Bilal, can I go first? Yes, absolutely. Yep. Go ahead. Okay, I have two things real quick. Uh, thing number one is Aider and a Better now has a Twitter handle. We are on Twitter at Aider and a Better. Please consider following us. We'll be putting up content that we usually talk about, like show notes or episodes on the Twitter account. Nice, I'm in. And uh, my other thing, and actually, Bilal, you mentioned something about 
Democrats and Republicans getting together. Yes. Uh, we haven't uh, recorded for a little while, uh, but a couple weeks ago, actually July 20th, Kamala Harris and Rand Paul, a Democratic and Republican senator, uh, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times. And I just wanted to express optimism, you know, in these divided days that uh, the uh, two senators have proposed a federal law in the Senate uh, to reform bail at the state level. So to invest funds in different states, to revise or reform uh, state bail systems, to shift from a money bail system uh, to a system that's actually based on risk assessments, whether a person's actually going to come to court, whether they pose a risk to the public. A huge part of the injustice and a huge part of the way that our criminal justice system is broken has to do with pretrial detention. People who can't afford to get out being held because they can't afford to get out. People entering pleas to counts so that they can get out instead of because the case is stronger because that's something that they want to do or because the evidence is appropriate or whatever. And so it's just an, an awful aspect of our system in my view. Uh, I uh, recommend the editorial or the op-ed uh, to folks. There, it's called the Pretrial Integrity and Safety Act. $14 billion a year is what they quote as the number uh, for the cost of holding people on a pretrial basis. They talk about low-risk defendants who are detained more than 24 hours and then released have more of a risk of not showing up than people who are released within the day. So oh. the more disruptive, right? it makes sense, the more disruptive our arrests are, uh, if you're arrested and held for a week and then you get out and the car that had all of your belongings is, is gone, gone and you can't get it, uh, the job that you had working for a little gone. bit is gone, the kids are being placed with the uncle and aunt, you're trying to track them down, the place that you had is gone the more disruptive our arrest is, the harder it is for people to continue to handle their cases, but also to function in society. So this bail thing is a bad thing. Uh, it's not working. There's reforms happening in the state of California. There's reforms happening. Uh, New Jersey had a reform. And uh, I think that the pendulum's swinging in a really positive way. So that's my thing. Cool. Uh, my thing is, I mentioned it earlier, I kind of spoiled my thing but it's uh the ear hustle podcast nice. uh so we're on a podcast. cookie crumb <laughs> i'm plugging another podcast um it's the ear hustle podcast it's on itunes and soundcloud it's a podcast that's um put on by prisoners from san quentin prison and it's really beautiful um it's uh one of the, the co the, there's a co-host one is a, a woman who is an artist who comes into san quentin to work with prisoners and the other is a um, is a prisoner, Erlon Woods himself, and then they essentially tell stories of what's going on in San Quentin prison. They talk about cellmates. They talk about a gentleman who keeps um, animals and pets in San Quentin. Um, this last episode was about uh, solitary confinement at Pelican Bay um, and giving a real voice to some of the experiences uh, that are happening inside our prison walls. So I highly recommend it. It's called the Ear Hustle Podcast, and um, that's my thing. Paul, what you got? Yeah, so I got a couple of things. The first thing I got, um, I want to talk about, uh, and my thing is uh, street soldiers that I hear on uh, Cameo on Sunday nights. Uh, I'm hoping to get on there. Is it still going? It's still going. <laughs> oh, I just, wow. In fact, they just were speaking about Ear Hustle just last night. Oh, very cool. So um, it's, it's really still a cool show. They still talk about a lot of things in the Bay Area. They talk about people going to prison and, and people changing society, you know, the ways in society. So it's very, very important. And I still really uh, uh, dig it. Um, also, my thing is is the return project. 
the return project is the documentary that we're in that we've been able to um you know show the atrocities of prop 36 we've been able to show the atrocities for men and women in, in mass incarceration we've been able to show some of the 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 families who are who are decimated for people sitting in prison for so long especially these non-violent non-serious uh crimes we've been able to go around the country we've been able to go to the white house we've been able to go out into the communities we've been able to go to a bunch of prisons and be able to speak and there was one gentleman that really it stops me every time i think about him he had been in prison for 33 years and he was very bitter he thought he had never had an opportunity to ever get out it was in cleveland and uh he spoke to me and he saw the film and he and he heard me talk and we had an opportunity to speak after and he was in tears because he said now i have hope and i like to continue with people um will be happy to come out and show the film and please go see the film on netflix and share it with your with your neighbors, share it with your coworkers, share it with, with people and know that we're returning citizens. We're here in the society and we're here to be a part of society and we're glad to be here and I just want to see people go out and see the film and participate in returning citizens in our lives and we know that we're here in this society. So I'm excited about that. Perfect. All right, perfect. Well, Everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Aider and a Better podcast, and we will talk to you next time. Raindrop, drop top, drop top, smoking, no cooking the hot box. Raindrop, drop top, drop top, smoking, no cooking the hot box.